Genesis chapter 49 this evening for the past ten weeks. Hard to believe. We have studied through the 49th chapter of the book of Genesis, and we have seen the blessings that Jacob has bestowed upon his sons. We have moved through all but two. Tonight we'll catch one of them, and then next week, if the Lord wills it, we'll look finally at Benjamin. Of all of Jacob's sons, I suppose no one, well, there's no doubt that no one of them carries more importance, more prominence in the Word of God than Joseph. It is quite fitting, for in Joseph we see a beautiful type and picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you were to study through the different types of the Lord Jesus Christ, you could probably say that Joseph is the most comprehensive type of Christ in the Bible. Uh, as you study his life, you'll find that it crosses dispensations, it crosses ages, it seems, as it shows to us both the hated and reproached Savior, but also the crowned and adored Savior of authority and of power. As Jacob blesses his son, much of this seems to be within his eyes' gaze. I do not know all of what Jacob understood, but I do believe that Jacob understood that these things reached far beyond just his sons. He says in chapter number 49, verse 1, he says this, Gather yourselves together that I may tell you that which shall befall you in the last days. We have taken note several times of that phrase, that it is not merely a, uh, a uh, illly gathered together phrase and, and uh, ensemble of words, but rather that phrase has definite prophetic connotations. The last days uh, stretches anywhere from the uh, time when the nation of Israel, at least in this context, uh, came out of Egypt, out of bondage, and uh, the, they began to be a nation, as it were, as opposed to a family. Uh, and it goes all the way down through the giving and uh, completing of the millennial promises. As it relates to prophecy, we might say that the last days reflects the church age, the times of the Gentiles, when the city of Jerusalem would be trod underfoot by Gentiles. And by the way, that's today. Amen. The city of Jerusalem is still trod underfoot by Gentiles today. Uh, still, the nation of Israel does not have total control of that place. And in, in fact, on the place where their temple once sat, there's a mosque setting. The Dome of the Rock is there. And uh, we're living in that time. And Paul talked about that time when he said, This know that also in the last days perilous times shall come. Certainly, we're living in those last days. But as it related to the nation of Israel, it presents to us an overview of their history, and we might say history and prophecy, the narrative of their story from their coming out of Egypt all the way down to God ushering in the millennial promises and uh, even beyond the millennial promises of what He has given to them. And as we've gone through them, we've noticed several important things. We won't take the time. We've got these online and, and to make CDs if you're interested in them. But we come tonight in verse number 22 to the person of Joseph. And Jacob looks at his son, his beloved son, the son of his old age, the son to whom he gave a coat of many colors, the son whose death or seeming death almost grieved him to death. And there he stands, safe and sound, and not only safe and sound, but exalted in power and in glory. And he says, Joseph is a fruitful bough, even a fruitful bough by a well whose branches run over the wall. The archers have sorely grieved him and shot at him and hated him. But his bow abode in strength, and the arms of his hands were made strong by the hands of the mighty God of Jacob. From thence is the shepherd, the stone of Israel, even by the God of thy father who shall help thee, and by the Almighty who shall bless thee with blessings of heaven above blessings of the deep that lieth under blessings of the breast and of the womb. The blessings of thy father have prevailed above the blessings of my progenitors unto the utmost bound of the everlasting hills. They shall be on the head of Joseph and on the crown of the head of him that was separate from his brethren. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that you would bless this time. 
that You would open our eyes that we may behold wondrous things out of Your law, out of Your Word. Lord, that these things that are revealed to us, that they not just be academic or theological truth and fact alone, but, Father, that these truths would be applied in a meaningful way. Lord, that You gain more of us tonight as we gain more of You. Father, we love You. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. I made this statement over the past couple of weeks that the last few uh, blessings that we have read, Gad and Asher and Naphtali, give to us sort of a mosaic picture of the state of the nation of Israel during the Millennial Kingdom. But you know, just as it is with heaven, you've heard people say this about heaven, that it wouldn't be heaven if who wasn't there? Jesus wasn't there. It just wouldn't be heaven. And certainly the Millennial Kingdom, it all centers around the King that sits upon the throne. And so it should be no surprise to us that just as Joseph's life portrays the exalted Savior, the blessing upon Joseph's life and upon his uh, descendants would also portray for us a picture of the enthroned and enshrined Son of God upon His millennial throne in His kingdom. Now, let me make a few statements that I think a preacher just ought to make every now and then, lest anybody forget. I am a premillennialist. I believe it's important to be a premillennial. I don't hate folks that aren't premillennial, but I sure wish they was premillennial because the Word of God teaches very clearly the truth of the premillennial, the, the pre-tribulation rapture of a seven-year literal tribulation period and of the premillennial visible bodily return of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ in power and in glory to defeat the armies of the Antichrist and to set up a real literal kingdom upon this earth whose epicenter and capital is Israel and Jerusalem and from thence He will rule and reign with a rod of iron and in righteousness and in truth. Now, I believe that tonight. I believe that because the Bible teaches that. I don't think, well, some see it this way and some see it another way. I think if you see it that way, it's because you see it. And if you don't see it that way, it's because you don't see it. Somebody say amen to that. I found this, that most people that shy away from premillennial truth shy away from all truth that deals with end-time things. And the more that we study and learn about the end times, the more we'll find that the focus is not on marks on our foreheads or, or on our hands. It's in there, but it's not upon that. The, the focus of the end time things is, is, is not about locusts coming out of a bottomless pit, although that's in the Word of God. The focus is not upon a one world government, although certainly that's in the Word of God. And I'm being more and more convinced daily that it's out and around us every day. The focus of the end time matters in the Word of God is the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the spirit of prophecy. And when we read the book of the Revelation, it is not the revelation of St. John. If your Bible says that and if it bugs you, go ahead and take pen and mark it out. Because the Bible tells us clearly that it is the revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is the culmination of God's drama and plan for the ages to enthrone His precious Son and to deliver to Him the glory that was purchased, that is always been, but that was also purchased, or we might say validated or vindicated, uh, there upon Calvary. I believe in the blessing upon Joseph. We have a picture of the sovereign Savior. Now, when we think of the Savior, we think of a meek Galilean. We think of the shepherd of the lost sheep of Israel. We think of him that walked the dusty roads of Nazareth and Galilee that uh, raised up the dead, that opened the eyes of the blind, that opened the ears of the dead. And certainly that is who Jesus was. And, and in some degree, that is still who He is in that it's His nature to be loving and compassionate. But the picture that we see, both in the book of Revelation, chapter 19 and onward, and also here in Genesis 49, is not of the meek Galilean, but rather it is of the conquering and kingly Son of God, that has come to take occupation of a throne that belongs only to Him. We might say it this way. We're not seeing a cross here, although it is referenced. We're not seeing the cat of nine tails. We're not seeing a crown of thorns here, although they are certainly noted. But what we see in Genesis 49, in these verses we've read, is a throne. 
and an exalted and conquering sovereign Savior that is enjoying the joy that was set before Him for which He endured the cross, despising the shame. This is one of the longer blessings. In fact, it sort of goes hand in hand with Judah. And that should be no surprise because Judah presents to us uh, the first advent of the Son of God and Joseph's blessing presents to us the second advent of the Son of God. And we might say it this way, that when we come to this blessing, the dust has settled from the battle of Armageddon. The uh, Satan has been bound and chained. He's been cast into a bottomless pit. The armies of the Antichrist have been destroyed. The kingdoms of this world have fallen to the kingdom of God's dear Son. A throne has been set up. Christ sits upon it. The dust has settled. And God takes a moment to pause and consider the splendor and majesty of His enthroned Son. He's no longer a suffering Savior. He's no longer a struggling Savior. He is no longer a sacrificing Savior. But here in Genesis 49, we see a picture of this sovereign Savior that is seated upon the throne. And I want us to notice five things this evening, one from each verse. I'll tell you, I sort of struggled as I studied because there's so much I want to say about it, but time will not permit. But I want to give you an overview of what each of these verses present. Now, again, you've got to get yourself in the mind frame. And I know that we can never reckon. I know we can never really comprehend. I know that I have not seen, nor, neither have you heard, neither have it entered into the hearts of men the things that God hath prepared for them that love Him. But just, just uh, be patient with me. Patronize with me for just a little bit. And take yourself to the throne of the Savior there in Jerusalem. See Him if you can in your mind. There is no longer rockets being hurled by Hamas. There's no longer terrorists stabbing people on the streets. There's no longer tanks rolling up and down the narrow alleyways of, of that ancient land. But all is quiet, save for the rejoicing and hosannas that the people of Israel, newly born again, are shouting under their crown king. Go with me to the heart of the city of Jerusalem and see him there upon a royal throne in power and majesty. And notice with me, number one, his condition tonight. Verse 22 says this, Joseph is a fruitful bough, even a fruitful bough by a well, whose branches run over the wall. Now, that may not mean much to you and I, but I promise it meant a lot to Jacob. Because you have to understand that for a long portion of Jacob's life, he believed that his precious darling son had been rended to death by wild beasts, had been laid low by the contempt and betrayal of the other uh, ten sons. And for many years, he had assumed that his son had been defeated and devoured. During that time, Joseph had been sold into slavery. What a picture it is of the Son of God being born of a woman, born under the law, uh, to redeem them that were under the law. Uh, down into the pit he went, down into the prison he went, and he suffered, but up he came triumphant from those circumstances. And imagine for Jacob how it must have felt as he stood there. Now again, you must remember, these are not little children gathered around their father's deathbed, but these are grown men. And no doubt if you had looked at the other 11 boys that were there, they would have looked like the typical Hebrew uh, shepherd men and shepherds. But when you look at Joseph, he does not he doesn't look like anybody else around him. You understand? He's dressed in the goodly peril of the Egyptian palaces. No doubt, as history teaches us, there was much artwork and decoration that went into their appearance. And there's and he's not the rough and tumble shepherd that he had once been in the field in meekness and lowliness. But now here he stands in splendorous robes and glorious jewels with all of the honor and glory that Egypt can bestow upon him. He's gone down into Egypt a prisoner, but he's risen up through Egypt a potentate. And after many long years, Jacob sits back and he looks. And he says, my, my, what God has done with my boy. Again, we think about what the Lord Jesus Christ went through in this world. And can I remind you tonight, my friend, and we sort of touched on a little bit this morning with those that want to bring Him down from heaven or put Him back in the ground to raise Him from the dead. I'm always struck when I walk through hospitals and, uh, you know, I, I, I walk through them a lot, amen. And, and I think, you know, Sister Karen, she works there in the secondary and I like St. Mary's. Don't think I'm criticizing St. Mary's. But you walk through those rooms, you know, they'll have little crucifixes on the wall everywhere. 
And uh, my father-in-law used to uh, take a pocket knife and he'd, he'd, he'd like unloose and he'd cry the Jesus off the cross. And I noticed when I went into that area, they had metal ones with the Jesus's hat welded on. And they caught on to you. <laughs> but you know, that's how the world still sees it. Shame, laid open and bleeding and naked before the world. But you know, it's interesting, even now they clothe things when they want to frame them that way. Let me tell you something, humanity can't bear to show what it was really like. And that's how they do it. What do they do? That's not my Savior anymore. Uh, he is already, listen, he raised from the dead to die no more. He is no longer the meek and lowly Galilean. But look what God has done in his and with his life. Now, I don't want you to understand me. I understand he's both the Son of God and God in the flesh. But you'll find a very distinct inner working between God the Son and God the Father throughout the entire measure of the Gospels. And there is no question, and Christ said this, I do always those things that please the Father. Uh, I believe in a distinct three-person trinity. Somebody say amen to that. I don't believe in a trinity in three parts. I don't believe in a trinity in three phases or three formats or three conditions. I believe in one God in three distinct persons. Say, explain that to me, preacher. I'll have to do it when I get to heaven because there's nothing like it in this world. But I understand that every one of them is just as much God as each other. And I understand that they constitute the Godhead. And I understand there is only one God. But yet Christ makes a clear distinction between those three persons. We see it at his baptism when the Father speaks thundering from heaven. The uh, Holy Ghost descends down like a dove upon the Son of God that's being baptized. There's no doubt that there was a harmony of will taking place. And a, we might say a cooperation or coordination between the Father and the Son. I understand that Christ said this, uh, that no man taketh my life from me. He said, I lay it down that I may take it up again. But he also said, this power have I received from my Father. The book of Ephesians teaches us this, that when he was raised, he was raised by the power of the Father. You say, do you believe that Jesus was too weak to do it? No, I believe he was surrendered and submitted enough to the Heavenly Father that he allowed the Heavenly Father to give glory to the Heavenly Father. You say, what are you getting at, preacher? I'm saying this, that look what God has done. Look what he's done. He's not the meek, lowly Galilean anymore, but he's reckoned as a fruitful bough. It's interesting that him who would grow up as a root out of dry ground is no longer a root out of dry ground. Now he's a fruitful bough. They thought they would stomp out those pesky followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me tell you something. You and I sit here tonight worshiping in the Spirit of God and in the precious truth of His Word uh, because the gates of hell would not prevail against the church because that which uh, Christ had placed in the hands of the Father would prosper because uh, the Lord looked at Him and saw the travail of His soul and was pleased and He gave Him the spoil of His suffering. Uh, they thought they could stamp out those followers of Jesus, but it just grew and grew and grew. Here we are, fruit. From that fruitful bough. It's interesting that it says it's a fruitful bough by a well. <laughs> you say, how does that happen? Well, what's a well in the Bible? I mean, I could preach a lot of typology here, but this is about to say uh, that Christ says this to the woman at the well. He said, if you drink the water that I should give you, it should be a well of water springing up in everlasting life. That's a picture of the Spirit of God that indwells you and I. By the way, the Spirit of God, His signature was on everything that the Lord Jesus did. I remember hearing somebody tell a story one time and uh, about a church they had been to, maybe they were young, but, but the Sunday school teacher told them this, had said that no doubt when Jesus was little, he probably did his miracles when he was young. That's what they said. He said he probably healed little broken bird wings, and you know, he probably he didn't step on bugs like my boy would, but he probably raised up bugs that my boy had stepped on. And that sounds sweet, and that sounds precious. I mean, that sounds like the making of a precious memory speaker. You know? Those things creep me out, those three eyes. That sounds sweet, that sounds precious. Here's the problem with it. John chapter number two, the Bible says, this beginning of miracles in Christ and came into Galilee. Now, why is that so important? Because it was after the Spirit of God had descended upon him in the likeness of the dove that he began to perform miracles. Could he have done it before? Sure, he could have done it before. He was the Son of God and God in flesh. But until the authenticity, the signature, the empowering, the working of the Holy Ghost was visibly and publicly present. By the way, that wasn't the first time him and the Holy Ghost had spoken. But they did it publicly so that men could see that it was the Spirit of God resting upon him. You ever wondered what happened to that dove that Noah let out of the ark? They went looking for a place that was pure, that rested. 
six foot upon him. It never did find one until there went Christ down to the river of Jordan in Galilee. And he says, Hey, come on shore enough to rest my foot on. He sat down upon the Son of God. And see, in this particular passage, we're looking at the conquering and triumphant ministry of Lord Jesus Christ. You know what it says? It's like a fruitful God whose branches reach over it all. <laughs> Let me tell you something. I'm sure and glad that his branches wrecked over the wall. You say, why, preacher? Because I'm one of those sheep that was not of this soul. Yeah. I wasn't on that side of the wall. I was on this side of the wall. I'm glad he didn't just come for the lost sheep of the nation. He didn't come for them. But I'm glad, listen, that when the crumbs fell from the table, a poor wretched dog like me could open his mouth and scoop up enough bread wine to live in him. I'm glad his branches rest over the walls of your name. There upon the throne in Jerusalem, a description is given. Listen to what it says in Isaiah chapter 11, the first ten verses. The Bible, Isaiah is right. This is probably one of the most fascinating prophetic portions of the Word of God. And it says this, There shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse. Jesse was the father of David. And a branch shall grow out of his roots. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord, and shall make him of quick understanding in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge after the sight of his eyes, neither reprove after the hearing of his ears, but with righteousness shall he judge the poor, and reprove with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall smite the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips shall he slay the wicked, and his righteousness shall be the girdle of his loins, and faithfulness the girdle of his reins. The wolf also shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the kid, the calf and the strong, a young lion and the fatling together, and a little child shall lead them, and the cow and the bear shall feed. Their young ones shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like an ox, and the sucking child shall play on the hole of the ass, and the winged child shall put his hand on the cockatrice's den. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And in that day, I like this, and in that day, what day? Is that today? No, that isn't today. Uh, some of y'all may have had, you know, it's sad. I, I'm more upset about saying it. But it, it, it's, it's sad. You know, have you ever heard someone lived out in the country wondering what happened to their little dogs? You ever heard that before? And you was listening to me, y'all got real quiet. I'm going to upset you, okay? I've heard people, you know, they live way out in the country. I was way out in the country. People way out in the country. They said, well, I don't know what happened to Frisky. She used to friend me. She used to tire me. She just weighed about what a tennis ball does. And, and I don't know what happened. I found her half of her collar. Amen. And you're sitting there thinking, I know exactly what happened to Frisky. I don't have the heart to tell it to her, but a raccoon or a coyote or something came along and scooped up a little Frisky. Uh, let me tell you something. It, it, it's, it's not the world we're living in now. If you want to believe it, every once in a while, one of these lion penguins or whatever gets an arm bit off because they decided those big, uh, ferocious cats are warm and cuddly. Now, I say this. If you want to hug up on a lion, go ahead. But you're getting what's coming to you. Amen? No, you might have said it to convince yourself that there's no danger in them. Animals are still wild. This is not that day because that day is coming. And in that day, speaking of the millennial promises, and in that day, the Bible says... There shall be a root for Jesse, which shall stand for an ensign of the people. That word ensign is the same word used for banner over and over again in the Word of God. has the idea of the colors and flag that an army marches out to battle with. A standard that has been born so that men may see and gather to it. And it says that he'll be an ensign of the people to it. Shall the Gentiles seek and his rest shall be glorious. That's the picture that we see as Jacob opens this blessing upon Joseph. He's not picturing the suffering and meek and lowly and sacrificed Savior, but he is seeing him in the culmination of God's divine will as the armies of the Antichrist have been put down, as the nations of this world have uh, fallen and have uh, melted together into the kingdom of God's dear Son. And there he says, so many years later, it's just a blink of an eye to God, but it's been millennia to you and I. And there he says, God has finally vindicated his precious Son. There he sits upon his throne. We notice his condition. I want you to notice the contempt that's spoken of about him. Listen to what it says in his history in the very next verse, verse 23. It says, The archers have sorely grieved him and shot at him and hated him. 
Oh, if that was ever true, boy, it was true about Joseph, just like it was true about Jesus. Joseph was a hated and disdained man. He was hated by his brethren. And by the way, he was even hated by his father. And I know that may be a departure from the type. Not that he was hated necessarily, but he was rebuked and uh, reproached by his father for the prophecy that he gave concerning the sheep bowing down and making obeisance to his uh, sheep and to the uh, stars of heaven bowing down and making obeisance to him. He was hated by everyone that was around him. He was hated by his brethren. But not only was he hated by his brethren, he was hated by the world at large. Uh, you know, we, we think that Joseph got this real warm reception in Egypt. But you understand that Joseph had to work and scrape and scrap for every bit of dignity and respect that he was allowed to have in Egypt. He was a prisoner just like anybody else. And we read it and we hear about him being in the prison. We think, oh, that must have been rough. He's in there uh, two, three weeks. He was in there for as much as 12 years in the prison before his head was ever lifted up and God ever delivered him from that place. No telling the abuse and violence that he had to suffer. The Bible talks about the shackles that were around his uh, wrists. And the psalmist says of those shackles that they were a burden. They chased him. They rubbed him raw. No doubt the infection had seeped into his body from that. He was hated by those that were around him. What a fitting picture of the Son of God. Never was there anyone, and never will there ever be anyone hated quite like the Son of God has been. To this day, you speak his name in certain company, and hatred and rage will flush and fill their face. What does the Bible say about the hatred that he experienced? John reveals it to us in John chapter 1, verse 10 11. He says this, He was in the world, and the world was made by him, and the world knew him not. Here is the Creator walking amongst his creation. And when you would imagine that he would be lauded and applauded and praised and adored, as being the very Son of God and God in the flesh. No. Instead, He's treated with reproach and disdain as He walks those streets. And the Bible says this, He came unto His own, and His own received Him not. But it's interesting that as Jacob talks about this, he's not talking about him being in the present condition of this. But he is mentioning that despite all of that hate and disdain that was poured out upon the Son of God, now here he sits enthroned as a conqueror. Can I just encourage you tonight in saying this? We're not waiting to see how this thing turns out. We already know how this thing's turning out. We're waiting to see if Jesus is coming back. We know that Jesus is coming back. There's a lot of worry about this, uh, you know, election coming up. Can I give you a word that, that may help you? Listen, we're not living in a political hour. We're living in a prophetical hour. And it doesn't matter what changes politically. Nothing's going to change prophetically. We're not, I understand America is getting the just desserts of her recklessness and irresponsibility. I don't doubt that. I don't dismiss that. But I understand also that this world, that evil men and seducers are waxing worse and worse. And that's not going to change. I don't care if you get a D or an R in the White House. Uh, listen, I don't care if he's an old socialist. I don't care if he's an old businessman. It's always funny, you know, when you, when you watch these. Uh, in fact, I was watching the debate the other day, the Democratic debate. And uh, this young man uh, stood up to the microphone. He was, a, he was a young black man, and he said this to the microphone. He, he said, um, in a day when the vast majority of politicians are older white people, why should we believe that as young black people, our interests will be protected by an older white politician? And Bernie Sanders just looked at him for a moment and said, like me? <laughs> it's always funny. And I don't care your political affiliation. It's just always funny to me that the Republicans say we're the party of diversity. The Democrats say we're the party of diversity. And ain't neither one of them got much of anything other than old white people. Somebody say amen to that. You know? That's just the reality of it. Now, listen, I don't care who you put into the office. It ain't going to change the wickedness of this world. It ain't going to change the wickedness of this world. And let me just encourage you by saying this. It don't matter who's in the White House. Jesus is still on the throne of heaven. And He's still returning in power and in glory. You see, all these things, they're past tense. The world does still hate Him. But we're not sitting around waiting to see how this thing's going to turn out. It's already been settled. We're just waiting for Jesus to return. A word is said about his condition, his contempt. Look at verse 24. A word is said about his conquering. It says this, that they hated him, but what happened? His bow abode in strength, and the arms of his hands were made strong by the hands of the mighty God of Jacob. 
from thence is the shepherd, stone of Israel. There's a lot going on in this passage, but there's a word I want to draw your attention to that I believe is very beautiful. As we relate this to the life of Joseph, what it is saying is this. Despite all of the affliction that Joseph had experienced, here he stood as a conqueror, as a potentate in Egypt. There he stands as one of the most powerful and important men in the entire uh, empire. And by the way, that's for that time a known world empire. One of the most powerful men in the world. He had defeated his enemies. As it relates to the Son of God, it teaches us this. That though the world, the Jews, death, hell, the mystery of iniquity all set their hand against the Son of God, still He rose in power and in glory from a lonely tomb as a conqueror above death and hell. It says this, that His bow abode in strength. You'll find the word bow a lot of times in your Bible. No doubt this is speaking of a bow as in a bow and arrow. But you'll find that there's no distinction between the word for a rainbow and the word for a bow as in a bow and arrow. In fact, really what the word denotes is the idea of a shape. And typically the context helps us to understand. You know, the context of the Word of God will straighten out a lot of problems. Somebody say amen to that. Shows us and teaches us. We have no struggle. We know that this passage is not alluding to a rainbow. But it does not escape our mind that the bow in the Bible is always connected with the idea of promise. From God. You'll find that when God destroyed the earth with a great flood, that afterwards He put a bow in the sky to make a promise to humanity that He would not judge the world in the same way. Again, everybody's losing their mind over climate change, climate change. You know, they, they wisened up and quit calling it global warming. Amen. Because it just kept getting colder and they started calling it climate change. Now, what they're saying is, is it man-made climate change or is it, is it uh, you know, you just can't help that it's, I don't know what they call it. But there's, in their mind, there's man-made climate change and then there's you can't help it climate change. Amen. You say, you worried about the polar ice caps melting and the polar bears riding down on a glacier and biting your head off? No, I'm not worried about that. I'm not worried about the glaciers melting away and the seas rising and the flood being covered in a great deluge. You say, why, preacher? Because every time it rains from the heavens, I look up and I see a promise from a God that is thrice holy, that sits upon a throne, who is immutable, who is impeccable, who never lies. And he said, I'll not destroy the earth again with a great flood. I'm not worried about it. I do believe that he's going to destroy the earth again, but not with a great flood. I believe the elements shall melt with fervent heat. We understand that He will destroy this earth, but not in that way. And the bow is is forever connected with the idea of promise. In fact, you'll find in the book of Revelation when John sees the throne of God, he sees a bow that goes entirely around the throne of God. And it's a rainbow. And it is indicative of this, that everything God sees, He sees through promise. Through the promises that He has made in His precious Word. So you know what it tells me? Can I just read to you a little bit that might help you understand? Acts chapter 13. Now, now remember, this is talking about the Son of God as He has suffered and been crucified. And what is the power wherewith He raised from the dead? It says this in Acts 13, verse 32, And we declare unto you glad tidings, how that the promise which was made unto the fathers, God hath fulfilled the same unto us, their children, in that He hath raised up Jesus again, as it is also written in the second psalm, Thou art my Son. This day have I begotten thee, and as concerning that he raised him up from the dead, now no more to return to corruption. He said on this wise, I will give you the sure mercies of David. That's the covenant of David. That's the promises that he made to David. Wherefore he saith also in another psalm, Thou shalt not suffer thine holy one to see corruption. For David, after he had served his own generation by the will of God, fell on sleep and was laid unto his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised again saw no corruption. Christ was raised again, not just by the power of God, but by the promise of God. You notice the Bible says this, that uh, he was raised from the, death, uh, from, uh, de- from the dead because he was not able to be holden of death. I understand who has the power over death, but I understand who has the power over him that has the power over death. And by the promise of God, Jesus was raised up from a lowly grave 
And that very promise, it was by God's promise, his bow abode in strength. Despite all that the world could throw against him, the promises of God stayed sure. God had promised his son that he would not leave his soul in hell, that he would not suffer his soul, holy one, to see corruption. And it did not matter how the world conspired, and it did not matter what the world planned and what the world propagated against him. The promise of God was more powerful than all the world could bring against him. Man, what a blessing that is for you and my... You know why? Because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. What shall we say to these things, Paul said? If God be for us, who can be against us? His bow abode in strength. God strengthened his hands. God raised him from the dead. It says this, The arms of his hands were made strong by the hands of the mighty God of Jacob. I like this. From thence is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. It's interesting that it should say that. I, I, I want to say much more than I can about it. But let me just say this. When it says from thence, there's two understandings of that. One could suggest that from thence meaning from the God of Jacob. Certainly that could apply. But I might suggest to, this to you, that when it says from thence, it's not saying from whom. It's saying from thence. When we say from thence, we're not referring to a person from which this, is, uh, this has come. But we are referring to a time or a place or an event from which this has come. And I might suggest this to you, that I understand He was always the Lord of glory. I understand that He was always the King of kings. But there is no question that through His sacrificial death, a place was rightly vindicated for Him upon the throne of His blessed father, David. From thence is the shepherd of Israel. Was He a shepherd? Well, what does a shepherd do? The shepherd does not merely sit back in the fold and delegate for his sheep to be brought in. No, he goes to where his sheep are at. And if they're lost and if they're astray, the story is told in Luke 15 of the shepherd that will leave the ninety and nine in the fold and will go over the hills and the valleys and the creeks and the crooks and the crags and will search after that one lost sheep. I'd say this to you. What made him the shepherd of Israel? That he sat on a throne or that he walked amongst the meek and the poor? What was it that was more shepherd-like? The fact that he's the Lord of glory or the fact that he suffered and died in their place? He said that he had come to the lost sheep of Israel. Time and again, you know, he stood on the hill outside of Jerusalem. He said, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets, how oft would I have gathered thee as a mother hen doth her chicks that thou wouldest not. From thence, from that experience, no doubt we can tell he's the shepherd, but no doubt from that experience we might suggest that he is the stone of Israel. What stone? Well, first off, we find that he is the stumbling block for the nation of Israel. You've heard the old rabbinical story, but I'll share it with you again. That it was said when they were building the temple and all the stones had been carved and all the plans had been laid, that they carved the stones as they would come to them in the quarry. That, you know, they would, they would find whatever stone would fit best for a particular stone. And they had all the papers and the plans laid out in front of them. And then those stones, regardless of what they were or what order in which they were in the construction, they would take those stones and carry them up to the side of the building of the temple. While they were doing that, they came across a strange stone. It was not shaped like any other stone that they had found. It wasn't like any other stone that had come up from the quarry. And the builders that were there at the temple site, they did not know what to do with it. And so they took it. They figured it was scraps. And they rolled it down outside the hill, down onto the pit. And they just said, well, forget about it. Won't worry about it. And they continued to build. And on and on they built. And on and on they built. And on and on they built. Finally, they come to the very last stone that must be put in place, and they look over to the pile of material where it should set, and there was nothing there. After a few moments of seeing, after a few moments of looking at what was missing, let me tell you something, the only hope for the Jew today is that they'll take a few moments to look at what's missing. They've got all the religion, they've got all the rituals, but there's still something missing. After the workers took a few moments, they looked and they saw what had been a stumbling block, what had been a piece of scrap, what had been sitting in the way, what they had rolled down the hill and rejected was actually the chief cornerstone, the very capstone that belonged at the very top of the temple to crown and adorn it and hold it all together and make all things consist. They realized that in their rash haste, They had rejected the most important piece in the entire process. The Bible says that he is the chief cornerstone. He was a stumbling block to Israel, and they did stumble at that stumbling block, Romans 9 says. See, they were expecting a sovereign, and they got a a sacrifice. 
They were expecting someone to come and break the yoke of Roman bondage nationally from them. And instead, what they got was the vicarious substitutionary Lamb of God that had been slain from the foundation of the world. They were looking for a warrior king, and instead, they got a shepherd savior. And so they pushed him away. They rejected him. They said, we have no use for it. Oh, my, on that day, they'll not say that. I know that, listen, the Bible says, and you hear it misquoted all the time, people talk about, you know, well, nation would be born in day. And that is what Zechariah says, the nation would be born in day. You hear people talk all the time about 1948 when they say that. I know it was, it was a remarkable and we might even say miraculous thing that the Jewish nation came back into existence in 1948. I'm not dismissing the cultural and, and political, and we might even say the prophetic impact of that in that it does impact prophecy. But can I say to you that the prophecy that says they'll be born in a day, It's not talking about being politically born in a day. It's not talking about being physically born in a day. But it's talking about being spiritually born in a day. The Bible says this, that when Christ returns in power and in glory, that the entire nation of Israel, Zechariah says, they'll look on Him whom they've pierced. They'll be smitten in their hearts with conviction. And in that moment, they won't wonder if He's the Son of God anymore. They won't wonder if He's the Savior of God anymore. But they'll see Him as the sacrifice of God. And they'll say, He's the one we crucified. And He's the very darling precious Son of God. On that day, the stone of Israel is seated in its proper place upon the throne of Israel. We find in this passage a word about His conquering. I want you to notice verse 25. We have a word about His comfort. I know I've got to hurry. Look, verse 25 says this, Even by the God of thy father. Now, he's talking to Jacob, and he says, The God of thy father. Or he's talking to Joseph, excuse me. He says, the God of thy father. Who's his father? Jacob's his father. He's saying, my God has done this. My God has done this. My God has brought you here, Joseph, who shall help thee. By the Almighty who shall bless thee with blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that lieth under, blessings of the breast and of the womb. We see a word about his comfort on that day. There's two things I want to say about it. One thing I want to say is this. On that day, we won't be holding any more elections. Somebody say, Amen to that. We won't be starting any more social programs. We won't be trying to figure it out anymore on that day. We won't be wondering what the next election cycle is going to bring to us. We won't be worried over the next crisis that's coming in our country. Listen, on that day, we won't, we won't worry about polluted water, for there'll be a river of pure water that flows from the throne of God. But listen, we won't worry, hey, we won't be worried about the ozone for the lamb is the light in that place. On that day, all of a sudden, society wrings their hands over will be of no consequence. What a blessing it is to know that God will be in control that day. You say, preacher, what do you think politically? What are you for? You know, we live in a democratic republic. I don't know if you know that. We, live in a, we don't live in a democracy. We live in a democratic republic. There's a difference. You say, preacher, are you for a democratic republic? Are you for, for a democracy? We've got a fellow running now who's a democratic socialist. There is a difference between a national socialist and democratic socialist. I'm aware of that. Uh, there's a lot of different possibilities. You say, what are you for, preacher? I am for a theocratic monarchy. I'm for the Son of God on the throne of God. On that day, that's the only day every day is going to be straightened out. That's the only time everything's going to be straightened out. But let me make another application to you, which is this. And this is the application Jacob was making. He looked at Joseph standing there, and he said, My God did this. My God did this. And can I just encourage you, that as you consider all that God has done in this world... By the way, there's no greater work that God has done than the work of redemption. And you've got problems. I know you do. I've got problems. We've all got things we're facing. There's folks sick and hurting here. There's folks worried and troubled here. There's folks that are fretting over the troubles of tomorrow. Folks that are regretting the troubles of the past and you're struggling with things. Can I just say that all these things, the creative work of God, the redemptive work of God, the God, listen, the God that put Jesus on a cross, the God that raised Jesus from a tomb, and the God that crowned Jesus and placed Him on a throne, or will one day, that God, that's my God. That's my God. That's your God. If you know Jesus Christ, that's your God. Jacob looks at his son Joseph and he says, my God did that. He says that the God of thy father, Joseph, he's saying, my God did that. And bless me, what a comfort it is. Listen, if God's got that much control, why would we ever think anything's out of control? We see a word of comfort. Then finally, and I'm done, we see a word about his coronation in verse 26. 
says this, the blessings that I father have prevailed <laughs> of the, above the blessings of my progenitors under the utmost bound of the everlasting hills. They shall be on the head of Joseph and on the crown of the head of him separate from his brethren. You know what Jacob is saying? He thinks to himself, have you ever thought this? He looks back and he thinks to himself, he said, you know, all Abraham got was Isaac. And all Isaac got was me. But he said, I got you, Joseph. You are the culmination of this grand dispensational typology. This scarlet thread that has woven its gilded tapestry all the way through the promises that began in Genesis chapter 3. When we close the book of Genesis, they are just a family. When it opens again, they are once again a nation. This is the the closing. This is the eclipsing and ending of the age of the patriarchs. And in Joseph, we find a beautiful picture of the culmination and correlation of God's grand plan for his son. And you know what Jacob's saying? He's saying, son, I've got you. And in you, I've got more than my daddy's ever had. The blessings of, of me, the blessings that God has placed, the blessings of thy father have been far above the blessings of my progenitors. He says, God has done a great and grand work far above what He ever did for my parents. As we consider <laughs> on that coronation day, you know, everything's coming to a conclusion. Everything's coming to a conclusion on that day. I understand there is an end to the millennial period of time, millennial kingdom, and that's actually what Benjamin deals with, and we'll talk about it next week. But suffice it to say that once Jesus puts that crown on, He never takes it off again. And there is a culmination of all of God's plan and promises and purposes in Joseph. And notice what it says. Look at this next phrase. I like this. Unto the utmost bound of the ever Everlasting hills. Thought about what that means, the everlasting hills. Commentators will tell us that is just poetic language used with with grand imagery. But you know, God never says anything just for no reason. And if God says something, He says it a certain way for a purpose. And He calls it the everlasting hills. I thought to myself, what are really the everlasting hills? What hills are there that have been eternal? Certainly there was a time... When the hills of this world were not in existence, we trust and believe that the mountain ranges that pepper this grand planet that we live on did not exist before the fountains of the deep were broken up in the great flood. You couldn't call those the everlasting hills. And in fact, the hills that you look around and see and the hills that were on, uh, that, that will be on the earth during the millennium, I want you to listen carefully. The hills that would be on the earth during the millennium are not everlasting hills. God's going to renovate the earth with fire. So what are the everlasting hills? I'd propose to you there's one everlasting hill. The book of Daniel tells us about it. When it describes an image that Daniel saw of a great and high statue, and that statue represented to us the various world empires that would come into existence. It began with the Babylonian head of gold representing the pure sovereignty of Nebuchadnezzar in his 70 years of authority and leadership. It goes down and uh, the Bible talks about a, a, uh, a breastplate or, or the arms of uh, silver and that represents just the Medo-Persian empire that though divided was strong and was splendorous. It goes down a little further and talks about uh, the brass that would be uh, a little bit lower, and that represents to us the Grecian Empire, that though beautiful and powerful, was also short-lived and uh, malleable, as it were. And finally, it goes down to the legs and feet of, of iron and clay that are mixed and represents to us the great Roman Empire that would exist during the day of Christ with the ten toes and the ten kings, the ten emperors. You say, that's good preacher. What does that have to do with anything? Where's this everlasting hill? Daniel says that he beheld all those things. And then all of a sudden, he beheld a great mountain that was carved. The Bible says, without hands. And that great mountain was carved out and was taken and was hurled at the feet of that great and mighty statue and crushed the legs. We know that picture is the destruction of the revived old Roman Empire under the authority of the Antichrist. 
And that great stone would crush that kingdom of iron and clay. And the Bible says this, that then that stone would begin to grow and it would overtake the entire and fill up the entire world. And there would be where the Ancient of Days would sit. I propose to you this, that the everlasting hills is not talking about a hill or a holler that you could go and plant your foot on today. But I'd suggest that God is pointing to a kingdom of His blessed Son. A kingdom that once it is sat down, by the way, it's always been established. But right now it's the kingdom of heaven as it is in heaven and the King is there. But when the kingdom of heaven is sat down upon this earth, and when the King of glory steps upon His throne, and when the crown is placed upon His head, and He takes that scepter in His hand, it's to never release it again. It's to never let go of it again. Never again will He be smitten. Never again will He be spit upon. Never again will His name be cursed. Never again will His church and His people be reproached. But in power and in glory and in total and absolute authority, He will rule this world. That's the everlasting hills. That's the promises of God culminating in the blessed Son. And the Bible says this. How does it end? It ends with a crown. It says, They shall be on the head of Joseph and on the crown of the head of him so beautiful that was separate from his brethren. When I thought about that, I thought about what the Hebrew writer says in Hebrews chapter number 7, verse 26. It says, For such an high priest became us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and made higher than the heavens. See, him that was willing to be hated and reproached and disdained by this wicked world, he's no longer hated, reproached, and disdained. But him that was separate from his brethren, him that was separate from sinners, now we see him in Joseph, crowned and enthroned in power and in glory. Worried about this election season? It's hard not to be. I mean, it's everywhere. I mean, there just there ain't there ain't nobody worth voting for. Somebody say amen to that. <laughs> I knew I'd get amens there. You you know what the great mantra of this election season is? Eh, him. You know that's the that's the great mantra of this election season. Eh, him. I guess. Why not? That's how people are voting. Man, it's discouraging. Can I just encourage you to say this? And this, if you're young, this may not mean a lot. To you. I hope it does, but it may not mean a lot to you. You got your whole life ahead. You got the world by the tail. I understand that. But some of these older folks that are weary, that are tired, that are sick of the suffering of this world, just hold on a little longer because Jesus is coming soon. And the God of promise will keep the promises of God. All that He has promised you will come to fruition. And him whom the world hates will be crowned in power and in glory. We won't have to worry with the suffering and darkness of this world, for the Lamb will be the light. What a blessed day that's going to be.